Hello, this is Rachel Zucker. Welcome to episode 48 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode features poets Destiny Birdsong, Julene Johnson, Jenny George, Amanda Galvin-Huin, and Eloisa Amesqua. I met these five amazing poets when I was at McDowell Colony. I recorded the conversation you're about to hear on February 12th, two days before I left McDowell. I'm recording this introduction a little over a month later, having returned from my 28 days at McDowell, but I'm still processing the experience of having been there and still adjusting to being back. McDowell Colony was founded in 1907 and was the first artist colony in the United States. About 8,000 artists Writers, visual artists, composers, filmmakers, playwrights, interdisciplinary artists, and architects have spent time creating at McDowell since it was founded. That's about 300 per year, around 30 artists at a time. Artists come and leave on overlapping schedules. The average length of stay is about five weeks. Artists apply for entry to McDowell, and if accepted as a McDowell Fellow, one stay is free, including all meals and residence in one of the 32 beautiful studios. Breakfast is available in Colony Hall, lunch delivered to you in a basket, and dinner is communal. There are no classes and no requirements of any kind. Artists are welcome to share their work but do not have to, and no one is required to attend another artist's open studio or presentation. The idea is to have time and space to create without distraction, without interruption, in a free, supportive environment. Of course, as you will hear from these five poets, everyone has their own particular experience at McDowell his or her own needs and preferences, and so much of one's experience depends on personal context, temperament, one's medium and or genre, the weather, and for some, the constellation of other artists who are present. I knew about artist colonies from a pretty young age. My mother attended several colonies and residencies over the years. I remember only being able to reach her during dinner on the one shared phone line. Twice I went with her to an artist colony. I was what we now call a tween, and we went to the only colony that accepted children, Cummington Community of the Arts in Massachusetts, a place I believe that no longer exists. I slept in a barn with the other artists' kids, and mostly I hated it. After returning from getting my MFA at Iowa to New York City, I became interested in going to a colony myself. I applied to colonies and residencies for years, always getting rejected, except for a six-day stay at VCCA, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, in early 2011. I'm not sure if it was because my stay at VCCA was so short and fell over spring break during a semester in which I was teaching two classes, or because my youngest son was just under four years old, but those six days, while wonderful, did not feel revolutionary to me the way my 28 days at McDowell did. And when I got to McDowell, I felt as if I'd never truly been to a colony. I'd been jealous of the artists who attended colonies, had fantasies about what that time was like, and wanted to know the inside scoop. Now I've been. I've sat in the beautiful library eight to ten hours a day, day after day. I know both the anger and resentment of worrying I would have to leave early when things didn't seem to be going well at home, 
I didn't leave early. Or the guilt and sadness of my young son calling me each night crying during the last week I was there saying he was really ready for me to come back. And I know the almost inconceivable gratitude of being cared for in ways I have not experienced for more than 20 years or maybe ever, certainly never in my adult life. For 28 days, I did not cook. I did not plan meals. I did not go to the grocery store. I did not pick anyone up from school. I did not clean up other than tidy my own beautifully simple live-in studio. For 28 days, the first question I was asked every night at dinner was, how was your work today? I could almost start crying just thinking about that. I did not read anyone's poems or help anyone with anything unless I wanted to. I was not responsible for other people around me's frustrations or neuroses. I went to sleep when I wanted. I woke up when I felt like it. I worked in my pajamas in the morning. I wore one of six outfits and then washed them, all of which took up one third of a washing machine. The way this affected my work, I was expanding and transforming my lectures into essays, into book form, was profound. This was not a project I had been able to work on at home because it was too difficult for me to go deeply into prose in such small blocks of highly interruptible time. But it was not just the number of pages that I was able to write at McDowell. I was able to write into a place, write in ways that I had never done before. Often this scared and unsettled me, and then I was able to freak out about it fully able to talk about it and if I wanted to, and then write about the freakout. I was able to get a glimpse into an alternative kind of writing life, one without the responsibilities of children, marriage, and teaching. But McDowell is not real life, not for me, not for anyone, even for people who are not parents or partners or teachers. It's a very special sort of experience, differently disruptive and opening for each person. It's been complicated for me coming home. And I've been trying to maintain some of the independence and self-focus I was able to tap into while I was there, but I have found it a challenge in the midst of my regular life. And yet, it hasn't vanished. It hasn't been extinguished. It wasn't just a dream I had. I am committed to figuring out a better balance, a more self-actualized way of living and making art and being a member of a family and a member of a community. And I am trying to think of ways, including commonplace, but not limited to commonplace, that I might help other artists find time and space or spiritual sustenance for their work. There are so few opportunities like McDowell, and I'd like to be part of creating more of them. Revisiting this conversation I had with Destiny, Juline, Jenny, Amanda, and Eloisa helps me renew these commitments to myself and to others, in part because this conversation helps me remember how many ways there are to be an artist and a woman and an active community member. I recorded this conversation in McDowell's Savage Library. It was a lovely coincidence that all the poems who were in residence at that time were women. They talk briefly about their interests, what each of them is working on, and they each read one of their own poems. Then we all discuss our experiences at McDowell, offer advice about residencies, talk about the selection process, and then the five poets read one more poem in reverse order. 
In addition to introducing you to the voices and poems of five astonishingly talented young poets who you might not know, I'm hoping this episode will answer some questions you might have about artist residencies, perhaps help you think about whether you want to apply for one yourself, or how you might get some of the benefits of, the, of a colony without going to one. One of the many things I love about making Commonplace is that it has some elements of my time at McDowell. Making Commonplace requires me to intensively and immersively prepare myself for the conversations with poets and artists, turn off my cell phone, and for one to three hours be truly present, truly with another maker in conversation. It's a bit like, better in some ways, the wonderful dinnertime conversations I had at McDowell. And I love the way you, listener, are included in these as well. There's no application necessary to be part of the commonplace community. All are welcome. That said, I cannot make and do not wish to make commonplace alone, and it is the support of our patrons that allows me to pay the commonplace producers, as well as keep my equipment up to date, and have travel funds to go further afield for artists who are not able to come through New York City. So if you love Commonplace and can afford it, please consider becoming a patron. You also get great perks. For example, all current patrons will have access to a sound file of me reading the one poem that I wrote at McDowell and an awesome playlist by Destiny Birdsong. Patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes broadsides donated by Amanda Galvin Huynh, a signed poem by Julene Johnson, and copies of Jenny George's just-released book, The Dream of Reason, and Eloisa Amesquez's From the Inside Quietly. Many thanks to Copper Canyon and Shelter Belt Press for donating copies of these two books. Visit commonpodcast.com to become a patron today. And please consider reviewing us on iTunes and recommending Commonplace to friends, students, anyone who you think might like the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter that comes out once per episode, and there are links to the other artists who overlapped with me at McDowell, including textile artist Aaron Riley, with whom I spoke in episode 47. There's a link to donate to McDowell, which is a not-for-profit institution funded mostly by contributions. So, okay, in this episode, you'll hear from, in order, poet and essayist Destiny Birdsong. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in African American Review, Bettering American Poetry, The Breakbeats Poets Presents Black Girl Magic. Destiny has received fellowships from Kaveh Kahnem, Callaloo, Jack Jones Literary Arts, the Ragdale Foundation, and of course, the McDowell Colony. Julene Johnson earned an MFA in Visual Studies from PNCA. Her work has been published in numerous journals and anthology, and she'll be pursuing an MFA in poetry in the fall. Jenny George is the author of The Dream of Reason, recently published by Copper Canyon Press. She is also a winner of the Discovery Boston Review Poetry Prize and a recipient of fellowship from Breadloaf, Lannan Foundation, McDowell, and Yaddo. She lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Amanda Galvin Huynh has received scholarships and fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Sawney Writers Conference, Sundress Academy for the Arts. Her work can be found in Rhino Poetry, Muzzle Magazine, Tahoma Literary Review, Silk Road Review, and others. 
Eloisa Amesqua is an Arizona native. Her debut collection, From the Inside Quietly, is the inaugural winner of the Shelter Belt Poetry Prize, selected by Ada Limon. Here we go. Okay, I'm giving this to Destiny because she's going to go first. All right, so welcome to one, two, three, four, four, all five of you. Um, We're sitting in Old Savage Library, which is the part of New Savage Library at McDowell. And all six of us are McDowell Fellows. And I thought it would be really fun to introduce you to these five poets and also to get some kind of insider perspective on what um, a writer's residency is like. I mean, McDowell in particular. I know that like for a long time in my life, I had a, a, a real uh, wish to come here or to come to a place like this, and I had no idea what it was really like. It was sort of seemed a little bit like a secret society, and I was like, oh, but when I get there, I will know what it's like, and so um, I don't know. I think that it would be great for um, writers and artists and non-writers and non-artists to have some sense of like at least what it's like for the six of us. Um, so... I thought we'd go around um, and we'll start with Destiny and if each of you could just like say your full name and maybe say if you have a book or not, not because I want to put you in a category of book, no book, but because if you do, then somebody could buy it. That would be great. Or if you have a book coming out or you could say not yet. Um, And then uh, maybe just like how long you've been here, what you're working on um, and read a poem. But if you want to say other things, you can say other things, too. Destiny. (laughs) Hi. Um, My name is Destiny Birdsong. I am a poet and a sometime fiction writer. (laughs) Um, And that's actually what I did while I was here. I've been here for four weeks. This is is my last day. And I revised a lot of poems. I wrote a short story. I edited some other short stories. So it's been a really, it's been a really productive time. Um, I don't have a book yet, but hoping that changes soon. (laughs) Um, I finished a first manuscript and I've been sending it out and I have a second one that, and that's the one I was working on when I was here. Things that are important to me. I'm I'm a storyteller. Um, I'm really invested in stories about women of color, particularly Black women. Um, I am deeply interested in my relationship with my mother. I think it's really complicated, but also really beautiful, and has, you know, benefited me in some really important ways. And I'm actually going to read a poem about her. Um, it's the title poem of what I hope to be my first collection, Mythicana. And um, this poem is called Mythicana. Heavy is the head of the welfare queen, though my mama is the only one I ever knew until she got the call from Atkins Elementary. It would be mornings of waking at four, walks to work, most months in the dark. A baseball bat for the dogs and who knows what else was lurking around the overgrown tracks on 79th. Long days on the cafeteria's slimy floor Baker's burns and swollen calves I would rub with green alcohol. Old shoes I'd polish white, then white, then white. Food stamps still. And a caseworker who said she had a chip on her shoulder. 
But even so, she shouted hallelujah as the receiver clanged against the base like a tambourine, her gold tooth glittering its open-faced corona, the ceiling fan with its missing blades marking time, a rickety metronome for our procession into a new life. Except it wasn't new, but handed down like our summer clothes, T-shirts emblazoned with the names of other people's vacations, White Sands, Galveston Beach. When I was in eighth grade, she quit without notice, spending mornings watching reruns of the A-Team and doing my makeup. Mauve lip liner, like she learned at a church seminar. Stepping back to double check her work, she'd say, I love it when a plan comes together, which didn't mean anything then. It would take years to untangle each thorny detail. The manager's coats she brought home had me unstitch some name from the breast pocket, but never wore. My therapist would call it a disorder. I'd do a similar thing after remission and call it Sabbath. Look at what the Lord hath wrought. My mother would confess that any metal can poison the blood. There's always the threat of insurgents. So many concessions for this kingdom. So many crosses lined up like railroad ties. It seems like somewhere, besides my mama's mouth, I'd have found a crown. Thank you, Destiny. That was beautiful. Can I ask you Thank one you. quick question before we before we move um, to Julene, which is just like, how do you feel that this is your last day? Well, um, it's actually, your, it's your leaving day. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. my leaving day. Um, I feel good. Like, I, one of my goals this year is to stop being the kind of person who makes lists, which I love, but I never complete them in the time like in, in the allotted time I give to myself. Um, but this is the first residency that I've been to where I made a list of things to get done and I got them done. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, one of the things I wanted to do was revise about 12 poems from the second manuscript and some of them are like ready to send out and some of them aren't, but I still revised all of them. And sometimes when that happens, I won't count the ones that didn't get sort of like showroom ready. Like I was <laughs> like, oh, well, you didn't do that. But the truth is that I worked on them. Right. And so they got crossed off my list. So I think that's, I feel good about that, that I did all of the things I came here to do. And I feel great about sort of the wonderful surprise of like finding friends, mm -hmm. like, um, I've been to a couple of other places where I've kind of met people who are cool, but I feel like I actually made like real friends here. Um, and Julene is my, was my first friend. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's hear yeah. from your first friend. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I, I really appreciated meeting you and, um, it was kind of a rough start when I first got here. So, and you really helped comfort me. And, um, so my name is, uh, Julene Johnson. And um, I write about place and um, loss. And um, I studied with uh, James Galvin at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And he always said, people, um, they either write from knowing or they write from not knowing. <laughs> and I feel like I come from a place of, um, or my work comes from a place of knowing. And um, that really helps me to kind of um, get through the pain or um, the tension within myself. So, um, yeah. Let's see. 
Let me ask you a quick question before you read a poem, which is, um, is since you are a poet who really often writes about place, have you been writing about this place while you're here? Or how does that work for you? Like, if do you bring your place with you or do you use poems to be in the new place? I I think it's like a transportation. It's like a vehicle um, for for me. So I feel like I don't really write about this place right now, but I'll probably write about it when I get home. So it's kind of a reflection. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And what are you going to read for us? Um, I'm going to read a poem that I actually um, was requested. So, and um, it's called Valdez, Alaska. Valdez, Alaska. A place where rain comes down, washing color sideways. The town sounds muffled by clouds covering the Chugach Mountains, created by glaciers a hundred million years ago. No one fights in an empty bar, vacant except for mice and memories of unkept floor. Still shedding its top layer, or maybe the damp air has helped the vegetation to grow green where the stage lights open up to the night. My kindergarten ears listen to rock music. I practice sets with the bands. I dance on wooden checkered floor. I give my unexpecting baby dolls liquor in bottles and watch them take in liquid through plastic mouths. At 12 years old, my parents paid me to clean the bathrooms in the bar. I never got the stink out of the urinals, vomit in pieces on the floor, filled with chunks of tomatoes. I knew the strings of white were once noodles, now resembled shoelaces. A piss-stained rang out as a beam of light, out of dial hand soap onto dirtied floor. The St. Polygirl mirror, the Guinness sign, the neon Alaskan amber sign have been auctioned off. My youth online or sold to other bars in town. A pig rotates over an oven a fat-lipped filled with an apple. Awesome. Wait, let me ask you one more question before you before you pass to Jenny. Um, so you're leaving on Thursday in two days, th- three days, three days, thank you. Um, and you've been here also for about a month, yeah? Um, it, this is your first residency, yes? Um, well, I... Um no, my first residency was Wuzaic. Um, it's in upstate New York. Uh-huh. I was there for a month. And um, then um, last year, I began um, 
applying for grad school. And so part of my process through applying to grad school was checking out every book that, that I wanted to work with, um, you know, each writer at each school. And um, so then that's how I found out about McDowell. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I, so I had really no idea about this place at all until about eight months ago. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and, you are, and you're going to go to grad school in the fall? Um, yes. Well, hopefully. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll, we'll check back in. But, um, and, and, um, what do you hope, um, if you can answer this question, like, what do you hope, uh, might, that you might find in grad school that you found here or, or what are you looking forward to, um, about grad school? Cause I think it's a really interesting, I think it's, less usual for someone to come to a place like McDowell or to come to two residencies as you have before going um, to an MFA program. Well, um, um, I, I already have an MFA in visual studies from uh, Pacific Northwest College of Art. So this will be my, my uh, second um, awakening, or um, except for with words and not more of the visual component. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to gain and what I've been asking myself for the last eight months is, um, you know, like I want to get the most out of um, words. And I feel like if I studied with um, a maestro or, <laughs> um, you know, someone who is very um, passionate about words, that um, maybe I would grow as a writer and so that's why I wanted to go to grad school for writing mm -hmm. because um my my first one wasn't for that got it yeah thank you that's gorgeous hi Jenny hi my name is Jenny George and I'm visiting from Santa Fe New Mexico it's my second time here at McDowell I was here um about three years ago also in the dead of winter. Very good time to get work done. And uh, I was here for a month last time, and this time just two weeks. Um, I have a, a book that's coming out, my first book that I worked on the whole time that I've been a poet. <laughs> I've been working on that first book, and it's about to come out. <clears throat> so now I'm starting afresh. It's very... Say the name of your book and the press. Um, it's out from Copper Canyon Press this April and it's called The Dream of Reason. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting and rich and scary place to be starting a new thing, not knowing what it is. So that's what I've been doing off by myself in my cabin. Um, yeah. We talked about this a little bit, like, um, well, first of all, you're the only one in this room who's been here twice. Mm. Um, so I'm curious to know if this time is different and how. Um, but I'm also interested in, like, I came here with a really specific project and a deadline. And on the one hand, I feel really good about that. Um, and a little bit like Destiny, like I had a checklist and I'd been checking things off and I get frustrated when I can't, but then I go back to it. But I, as I'm about to leave, I also feel a lot of regret that I didn't come here with a more open-ended kind of uh, in a discovery phase. Like they have a library full of books that I haven't <coughs> looked at <coughs> once. 
And so I have a fantasy. I mean, I, I just think it's different. I don't think one's better or worse. And, and it could have been very anxiety producing for me if I had had an open field, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm interested in what that what it's been like for you to have your book coming out, to have finished something and then to be open right now. Yeah, it's very anxiety producing. <laughs> I mean, it's very, I think it's a really useful anxiety. Um, and the tension for me, the challenge for me is staying, it's is sort of staying in that and trying to work simultaneous with that anxiety as opposed to allowing it to shut me down or, or um, trying to counter it by uh, setting up plans for myself. Um, I think I work best from a place of real, um, boy, it's hard to put it into words, but a kind of, um, yeah, a sort of bottomlessness or openness. Um, I'm not all that goal-oriented and productive, so if I can bear the um, anxiety of not knowing, then um, I think that's a really rich place for me. I liked Julian's uh, formulation about knowing and not knowing in different kinds of writing, and as I was just thinking about it now, I think, um, well, I'm sure all of us have both, but my instinct is is that I write somehow from knowing towards unknowing or something like that, and yeah, so maybe I'll share a great poem. Um, This uh, this poem is called Notes on Pigs, and I, um, I write a lot about animals and the relationships between humans and animals. Um, This is a poem that explores that. Hold the mic a little closer. Thank you. Notes on pigs. A pig has eyelashes. The pig's eyelashes function like our own eyelashes, but have a different meaning. A pig who cares about her looks is absurd. A pig does not take a long evening bath with a glass of sparkling grapefruit juice set on the porcelain ledge. Many people live near animals. A person who cares about a pig is a rare thing. Neither a pig nor a person is invincible. A pig is a tasty thing when killed and cooked. A person dressed in a pig costume is trying to be funny. Pigs have superior eyesight. A pig can see the silver belly of a plane moving across the sky, or a beetle crawling up a fence post. Certain pink tulips, when the sun hits them, have the color of a clean pig. A pig can only give birth to a person in a dream. When a pig dies, it is either mourned by other pigs or not. Beautiful. Okay, one one other quick question, which is um, how you're also leaving on Thursday. Mm. And how did the two week period feel to you? Did it feel long, short, enough, not enough? Yeah, I I lived a whole life during these (laughs) days I've been here. When I when when I got here on the first morning, and uh, Cindy walked me into my studio cabin and opened the door and I walked in. And I just thought like, Oh, you fool for staying here only two weeks. It's the greatest place in the world. It's look at my little Oh, you know, there's a fireplace and a desk underneath the window overlooking the forest, and it's so, so quiet and a little narrow bed, and I just felt like the most delighted monk in the world. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, of course, the, these these long, long days, um, the days at a residency, as we all know, have a lot in them. There's a, they're very spacious, and so uh, even in these 
12 days or so far or 13 days that it's been um a lot has happened psychically for me so <laughs> it feels complete now excellent okay hi eloisa hello um i'm eloisa mesqua um i'm from arizona originally and i am back in arizona as of a year and a half ago um my first collection called From the Inside Quietly came out last month from Shelter Belt Press. Um, and this is my first full time at McDowell. Um, I was here over the summer for three or four days and had to leave for a family emergency. Um, but the beautiful thing about McDowell is that they're, the, the staff here is extremely generous. Um, and so because of that, they allowed me to come back and, and finish out my full residency. That's really nice. Yes. <laughs> Which is great. What can I, so you're the only person who was very briefly here in the summer and now the winter. Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, the summer is a lot more social, I think, because people can be outside during the day. And so there's a lot of, you know, lounging in the sun and going on long walks and um, day trips to the lake, um, which are all beautiful experiences, but not for me, not very good for my work. Um, so I much prefer being here in the cold. And you're working on a second book right now. I am. Right I'm working on a second collection um, of poems based on the life of uh, lightweight boxing champion Bobby Chacon and his first wife Valerie cool yeah is that where you're going to read to us from um maybe later yeah you okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read from my from my collection first awesome. um and I like destiny write a lot about my mother um who would like some commission from my from my book but unfortunately there is none to give her at the moment <laughs> Um, so this poem is called Teaching My Mother English Over the Phone. I try to explain the difference between pant and pants, why the former isn't simply one pair, but what the lungs do with fear or excitement, why clothe isn't a singular noun, but what most do to the body each morning. She calls on a Wednesday needs help with an assignment for her third English beginner's course where she meets twice a week her classmates from countries with names beautiful as hers. I try to make the language clear to my mother as she one day, before my English took hold, explained to me that I did not in fact make friends with a girl named Sari. But we were on the playground, and she hit me, fue accidente, y me dijo, I'm sorry, and when someone says, I am, yo soy. That's not how this works, I remind her when she asks if the plural of dust is dusts. She asks me to conjugate love. I love, you love, he loves, she loved, we loved, you have loved, I am loving. She wants to know how a word can be both a thing and an action, like war and mistake. Although I can't put into words in Spanish how I know the difference, so I tell her I have to go. 
and I go, and she goes, and I haven't taught her anything. Okay, so I also know that you have a system to your days. I do. Um, I'm a Virgo, and I'm a list maker, and I'm a, 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 I try to stick to a strict schedule, um, both here and in my regular life. Um, but so I came here with the goal to write two poems every day, no revising or editing for the first three weeks, and then the fourth week would be my editing week. And this is your second week, right? Yes. Okay. And how have you kept to? I have kept to. On one day I wrote three, and on one day I wrote one. So it's like evened out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I should say that I'm working a lot with found text. So I think it makes the writing a little bit easier at some points. But now the only poems I have left to write for this second project are not found text poems. So it's going to be a little slower, I think. And what are you doing uh, when you're when you've met your daily quota? Oh, then I'll read. Uh-huh. I'll read, or or then I I will cheat and let myself revise a little bit. Um, but I have been like ordering my manuscript and reordering it, and and doing a little bit more of the research side of things for the project. Got it. Awesome. Thank you. Last but not least. Hello. Hello. My name's Amanda Galvin Huynh. Um, I'm originally from Texas. Right now, I am living in a small town in New York. I have to be very specific because I'm like, oh, yes, I live in New York. People are like, oh, New York City? I'm like, no, little town called Middletown. Uh, it's right outside of New York City. So, yeah, um, this is my first time at McDowell. Um, I do not have a book at the moment. Uh, I did arrive... How long has it been? About a week. So February 3rd, I think I arrived. It was on a Friday night when I came. So it's been great. <laughs> and you're the, you're the last of us to leave. When are you staying till? I'm staying until March 6th. Wow. Into March. Yes, I know. Whole my, my whole February is here. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do when y'all leave. I'll be like, oh, here I am. New people will come. I know. New people will come. But I like this atmosphere right now and I love the fact that we're all here together um it's very special it is very very special um so yeah awesome and what are you working on while you're here I'm working on my first manuscript and then also possibly new poems that I think are turning into a second one um my first manuscript deals a lot with identity assimilation, um, the loss of a culture or what you inherit from your parents, and as also the experience of living the bilingual experience and being um, a woman of color and what that means to inherit that womanness from your mother. Uh, So I write about my mom as well. So, So, yeah. There's a lot of mothers in this room. I know, there are a lot of mothers in this room. That you can't see. (laughs) (laughs) They're standing behind it. Okay. (laughs) Um, On that note, uh, the poem I'm going to read has to deal, of course, with my mother, um, kind of the imagining of uh, what she might have gone through. So this one is uh, Who La Llorona Cries For. 
I imagine my mother saw the two blue lines as handcuffs made from rivers, 21 and pregnant. The two blue lines clapping, announcing to her in-laws that she had made their son a father, finally. Did she think of her mother? Throughout the next nine months, did she wonder if her mother sat outside on the porch eating sardines? Did she want to ask her how she carried a pond in her belly or what death felt like at 32? In the delivery room, I can hear my mother, ah, mi mama, calling over and over, mi mama. Every contraction, a protest, a reason not to deliver, not to become her mother, a single mother, a mother who would leave her 16-year-old daughter. In those first seconds, I came up for breath. My mother was already calling to the dead. Hmm. I'm just staring at Amanda creepily because that was so <laughs> powerful. Um, <laughs> someone's driving and going, "Why aren't they talking?" Like <laughs> fiddling with fiddling with their volume control. So I I'd love to know um, from whoever wants to. Uh, like I just want we don't have to continue to go in an order like whatever uh, whoever wants to talk. Um, uh, I have a, a bunch of questions, but maybe I'll do the most practical one first, which is, um, do you have advice for someone who is, you know, going to do a residency? Um, so someone who's applied, gotten in, and on their way, like, you know, I myself don't know the answer to that question. I was just thinking this morning as I was looking around my studio, well, I brought like a huge box of books, and I didn't read any of them and then that has to do in part with like the project um that I'm working on and where I am in that project um it was helpful for me to have a few of them but uh had I known for example how amazing the library is here I also would have brought fewer books um that's a silly thing um but yeah what 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 do you wish you'd known or what what do you wish someone had had said hey you know you're going there think about this I think I would agree on the books I mean I did research before I came here so I got in touch with the local library and I was like I need these books can I get my library card so I can put these on hold so I kind of reached out to them to see if they had the books that I had at home so that way I wouldn't bring them but I did bring a bunch of my books um, to read while I was here but I found myself like you said in this wonderful library that's here and um, reading their books and I've read a novel this past week and I haven't read a novel in a very long time and it's usually just been poetry so that was a nice change of pace in order to allow myself to do that um but yeah I wish I wouldn't have brought as many books I don't know if I'm going to make it through them all so yeah I think coming into this there's also a sense of like I'm gonna have so much time to myself and I want time to myself and I want to live this kind of like monastic life where I'm just in my cabin and not coming out and only eat like eating in silence and not talking to anyone um but I think one of the best things about 
a residency in McDowell in particular is that you're surrounded by mediums outside of your own and the conversations and the, you know, um, getting to learn about other people's practices, whether in the same medium as yours or in a different one is useful for your own, your own, um, artistic life. Um, so I think that's been something, um, useful. And I think that's something to consider, you know, what kind of, um, conversations are you open to having before coming here? Um, you, you, okay, hold on a second, because I have a specific question. Yes. You had a visitor. I did. None of the other ones of us have or will have. I don't think you're going to, are you? You might. Okay, Amanda might. But Eloisa, you had a visitor. How'd that go for you? I think it went well. Um, it actually came at the perfect time because I was sort of stuck in my like two-a-day poem rigid structure um so I think it did give me a little break from that and a step like some breathing room um from my own project um I have my manuscript taped up on the wall in my studio so it feels a little like serial killer-ish um (laughs) sitting next to that all day and just kind of staring at it while I'm not working so it was good to get away from that for a little bit and just kind of um refocus um my partner is also a writer so it helped to have him go over the manuscript Mm -hmm. and get some feedback um before going any further so that was also really useful wow (laughs) yes i i have to say um uh there was another mom writer here chaya uh whose kids and husband came up um to visit and uh i I wasn't sure before I came whether I wanted um, a visitor. It would have probably been my youngest and my husband. And I have to say, I I did I do not. I'm I. It, it's been hard to be away, but I think it would have been really disruptive for me. Like um, Destiny, Julene, and I uh, did a reading at the bookstore in town, which was amazing. I loved going. Julene and Destiny organized it and it was like totally fabulous. And it was like, but I, but then I had to like re, um, cocoon or something like it was, it was disruptive, not in a bad way, but I, but just seeing how, how hard it was for me to like go into a more public self and go into town and, and, and like, and leave the kind of creative space um was really interesting so so I mean I think if I had to do it over again I would also for myself not have um a visitor and not maybe go off campus so to speak (laughs) I think I'm someone that works in public spaces so I do my best writing at coffee shops or just when I'm surrounded by people I don't know, so they're not talking to me, but there's noise around. Um, so in my studio, I play music or like uh-huh. have sound going in the background because I have the opposite problem where being in my studio with no sound in, in the middle of the woods is kind of the opposite of my like optimal writing space. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, it was comforting to go into town and spend, spend time around people. Um, even though I don't like talking to them. It's just, I, I like I like being around people when I'm working on things. Fascinating, yeah. Jenny? My residency advice is about rest. Mm. And it, it it's um, a piece of advice that a teacher gave me 
a long time ago that has really helped me over the years, which is that she said that she has a formula for residencies and retreats, which is that um, to rest for the first quarter of however yeah. long the retreat is for 25% of it. So if it's a, a month long retreat, then a week of rest, or if it's 10 days, then, you know, two and a half days of just really letting yourself rest. And that, that has been such a helpful formula for me in terms of thinking of resting as part of the practice, like our bodies are what we write with. And, um, so to, to, you know, to arrive here, to get into that wonderful little cabin and then just to feel like, and my job is just to like, just be here and, and sleep or, you know, rest in, in quiet, just look out the window and not worry too much about jumping right into production mode, but really allowing myself that full chapter of resting. And I, I, I feel like that is advice I would give anyone. I mean, it might be, it might land differently on different personalities, but I feel like we come from worlds that are so <clears throat> production oriented and output oriented and to think about tending to ourselves at that level as part of the work is an important one. That is profound and radical. And I wish someone had told me that before 25%. But I also <laughs> wouldn't have listened. Next time you but can do that I, advice. But next time I'm going to try, I really am. I think that's brilliant. I think yeah. that's really brilliant. And it might even involve resting a little longer than you are comfortable with. You know, that's why part, that's why that formula has a kind of mathematical, uh, you know, uh, niceness to it for me because it's like well I'm still nope I'm still in my you know this is day two and a half but I'm not quite I haven't quite, I'm not quite at the 25% mark so I'm going to keep resting and I also think the that um that it's good for our writing to to be really accurate to our impulses in you know in our somatic impulses even so as I'm working and sitting in my, my desk and looking out the window if I feel that you know I'm I think it might be nice to lie down. Mm. Then I'll do it. Like, oh yeah, because because following our impulses is part of what makes us a good writer. So, oh my God, I love that. Uh. Advice, Julene? Um, I would say keep an open mind, mm. um, and take advantage of um, all the woods and um, trails that are here. Yeah. You've, from the beginning, you have been so, like, um, engaged and open, and I feel like you, you have modeled having an open mind, like, being interested in what's around us and, you know, what there is to see and where there is to go, and I've really I both appreciated it and also been like, what is she doing? No, cause, because it, it wasn't my, it wasn't my initial... Um, or, or it wasn't my way of spending this time. And so I'm really interested in that. And I don't know if it, if I were younger or if I was in a, in a different part of my writing process where I was, you know, more open because I feel like usually one of the things about poetry from that I love is that it connects me to the place that I'm in and the time that I'm in, like to the present and to the place. And, and maybe it's just as simple as that I'm working on prose. And so I, I feel like I'm doing more of what I've heard, like fiction writers do, those strange beasts, where they, where like the writing, it, it doesn't even matter almost where they're writing. 
it's like they're going to the place of the writing and that's never been my experience with poetry but um it's been interesting to to um to realize like there are so many different ways to have this experience and some of them are you know more connected to the place and the environment and the history of it and the weather of it like I'm like just I'm just like I'm gonna just not slip <laughs> so I can get to the library and then just go right back to my book um which is fine but um also kind of a loss like I feel like I was here and also like I wasn't here to the extent that I could have been yeah yeah open I, mind I would definitely um take advantage of um the aura of this place and the fact that there have been so many different creative people and just kind of taking their energy has been really helpful in my writing process mm. too thank you um, so I'll, I'll echo a little bit um, of Jenny's uh, um, advice about taking time to rest. Like, I didn't try to force myself to write when I first got here. <laughs> so I actually um, inadvertently spent like 25% of my time <laughs> resting. I took lots of naps. Um, I had the best naps and then I would wake up like slightly embarrassed because um, Blake would be bringing my lunch and it'd be like 12, 15 and I'm like, like, like just sprawled on my bed with my mouth open. Um, but um, so, yeah, I think that's really important to just settle yourself in a place and get comfortable and and kind of slough some of the stuff from your regular life. Give yourself time to do that. Um, I feel like once I did that and I started writing, I was much more effective. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, what's a, I think should probably be a good rule for life in general, is like, don't make assumptions about people. <laughs> um, I'll give one particular example. So there's an amazing composer here named Koji Nakano. Um, and when I first saw him, I just assumed like composer, austere, probably not someone I, I should bother. Um, but he's turned out to be like this wonderful, <laughs> <laughs> he's turned out to be this wonderful, adventurous person. Yes. And oh my, his laugh. Yeah. Like when he laughs, you laugh because it is bubbly and just full of life. And, um, the conversations I've had with him have been so powerful like his um you know what he thinks about his relationship to his art and um he also emphasizes the importance of rest and and like instinct and like if you feel like sleeping you sleep and when you wake up you write you know and and it seems to have worked for him because he's pretty successful so i feel like <laughs> koji says naps are okay naps are okay <laughs> um but yeah that's been such a i i, I would definitely give that advice that like um talk to people outside your genre, like go up, there's a weaver here and she had an open studio that was like marvelous, like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and inspiring. And there, there's a um, Alexandria Smith who was here when I first got here uh, and our time overlapped maybe like a few days to a week. Like those, um, the privilege of experience, experiencing other people's art, right? Like all in one place that you can go and see you know, these artists creating these wonderful things, like don't assume that because it's not your, it's not what you're doing, it's not poetry, it's not fiction, it's not the written word, that it's not going to be useful or inspiring. And yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that would be my advice. Yeah, I'm super glad that you brought that up because I feel like um, that's been maybe the thing that I didn't expect. It's been the most surprising uh like blessing of being here and I've been thinking a lot about like why what is the formula of why it's so beautiful because I mean um I've always been really interested in other art forms but there's something about you know there's a lot of rules about you can share your work in an open studio or in a reading um, after dinner, but it has to be 20 minutes and it can't be more than 20 minutes. And we all usually go over a little bit, but everybody is so nervous about going over the 20 minutes. And when I first got here, I was like, that is like, what is the deal with this tremendous, you know, anxiety about going over the 20 minutes? Um, but I think that there's something like very profound about, um, uh, being able to go deep um, and be really open and vulnerable in those uh, open studios and at dinner, but also know that it's limited, that you're protected, that you're not responsible for that other person. And also knowing that the person that you're speaking to, like, yes, we should never make assumptions about people, but there's also a way in which there's like a protection around um I don't know, like there's something about getting to know someone socially in this very sort of strange way that we're doing here um, in a like in a limited but intense way. And then being op- then seeing their work. Usually it's like the other way where you see someone's work or you hear about it and, and then and then you meet them and then you're kind of like trying to match up all this stuff. But it's like I don't know, it's like this. It's like this intimacy um, that's both uh, like really like deep and and potentially changing but also a kind of structured and um I don't know there's something about I've been thinking about that a lot like I don't know how I could ever like bring that into the structure of an MFA program or into the structure of my daily life because I do have friends who are artists I hardly ever see them um but I don't know. I've just been thinking about that a lot because that's been that's been really uh, profound for me. The social part of it. You're, yeah, Eloisa. I feel like part of it is um, so for no, people who've never been here at McDowell in the hallway leading into um, the dining room. There is a wall with people's bios and their picture, and it has people who are coming in in the next week or so. And there's something sort of intimidating about seeing people's names on there. Also, when you arrive in your welcome packet, there's a list of everyone who's here with their accomplishments, a little bio. Um, And like, just personally, I was really intimidated that you were here, Rachel. Oh, thank God, Um, someone's intimidated. And I was like, oh wow, Rachel Zucker's here. I listened to the podcast, I've read her books, like she's wonderful. And there's something intimidating about seeing like your bio or Koji's bio or, or people's bios and then getting to know them as people before, like you said, before their after dinner presentations of their work or their open studios. And I think that's what it is. It's that like the intimidation of the work goes way down because you already know them as a or you get to know them as a person. And that really helps build the relationships, I think, because so often we come to our mentors or to people who we look up to um, through their work and not through them as people. Um, And so having that flipped 
is really wonderful and you get to know these people who you admire in the other direction and that's really great so um this is amanda oh (laughs) this is funny because i actually didn't read the bios Mm -hmm. and so i went and i met people and then after like some of the dinners if we were going into a presentation i would like glance it's like okay i just met like jenny or i just met so and so let me go and like read and like oh okay so it's kind of like a surprise like oh okay this is who i just talked to but it's funny that that's the first thing that you did and i did the opposite of it of like oh let me talk to these people and then realizing oh this is so and so so yeah um what else what's what's has surprised you guys or or what's also like you know we're all so happy we love it here okay okay but what's been hard if there's been something hard I mean, I think we were talking about this uh, last night a little bit, Um, especially with poetry. It's a little bit harder to really, I mean, Eloisa, you have your two poems a day. I know some people here uh, in translation, Joyce, she's doing 20 pages a day. And I think with poetry, it's a little bit harder when you're revising and because you could spend hours on just a single stanza on a single line on like a word choice but I'm a person, a type A personality and I love to like make lists and check things off. And so for me, that's also frustrating because I feel like I haven't gone anywhere, even though I know that the two hours I might've spent on a line or two is the work that I should be doing. So in one respect, I guess I feel like I should be, uh, counting my hours on what I spent because I think just the other day I laid out my manuscript on my floor at the moment to really look at it and to really see it and then to pick from there and be kind of following my instincts of oh I feel like I need to work on this poem today oh I need to work on this poem today while still writing poems because for me um, how I work is once I start writing a poem then another one comes and then another one comes and it's all like it's all drafts um and so it comes in waves I don't know if I could I don't know if that's helpful or not um when I think about it but it is frustrating uh because it's not something that I can force um and I try not to force it either so yeah Um, so just to kind of um, talk about that process, my process is kind of like Amanda's. Um, this is Julene. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, it's kind of like Amanda's um, where I, um, when I first went into my studio, I laid out all my poems because I'm working on a manuscript. And um, then um, it's kind of like photography for me because... Um, that's when I got my MFA in, is um, art. So it's kind of like um, you have 32 frames, right, in a in a black and white film. And um, so it's, um, you take photographs, and then you develop it, and then from there, um, you may have like five good photographs from, so um, I like I write and I write and write and then um, I'll pick lines if I don't like the poem, I'll pick lines from that and create another poem out of that. So yeah, I'm kind of a generator, kind of like you. So that's yeah. I completely understand that. And now that you just said 
photography where you take your pictures, you bring it, and then you select the few that just strike you. Yeah, the gems out of it. Um, I would definitely say that that is exactly how it works with writing because it's the same. Uh, like I said, for me, is I'll write and I'll have all these drafts, but I don't consider it a poem fully written until I put it into my um, Word doc. And once it's actually there and it's a text, and then from there, the actual hardcore revising, uh, changing one version to the next starts to happen, um, at least in my process. I usually start poems off um, on sticky notes, and then from there I'll do another revision, um, and that's when I'll put it onto a document. Yeah, yeah, you're like just the briefest of <laughs> mic hand. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so yeah, that's been one of the things that I've learned here. Um, I kind of inadvertently started a second manuscript um, last April because I did the thirty thirty challenge, thirty poems in thirty days, and um, kind of turned into something else. And so I started writing. But um, when I was here, a couple of things happened. So first, like coming to the realization like you were talking about Amanda that like the two hours that you worked on a poem even if it's not like ready it's still work and it still counts um and it's still important um even if that poem you know doesn't necessarily make it into the manuscript I found that since I've been here that um I've been sort of rewriting poems so like I'll write one poem and I'm like eh, this is okay and then I'll write a different poem and I'm like oh that's the thing I was trying to say in that other poem that didn't quite come out um, so just really being humbled by the process. Koji, um, in a conversation we were having about art, Koji said that one of his teachers once told him that the art teaches you something. And I think that's been one of the one of the difficult things about being here is that my art has been teaching me some things that I, or reteaching some things that I'd assumed, you know, was true. Like, you know, every poem, <laughs> every poem is meant to be like a poem that goes out into the world. Like I just have to figure, I, I have to get smart enough to fix it. And I don't think that's true for me. Um, I've, I have a, uh, um, I have a folder called a few good lines and it's like just where the, where some poems or poem exercises go to die. And I opened it the other day and there were like 35 documents and I was like 35 poems. <laughs> I could have a manuscript by now, but that's the process. That is, I mean, they are, they did sort of give themselves to the work that I'm doing. They, you know, they didn't make it, but they sacrificed themselves for the, for the greater, <laughs> for the greater good. So yeah, that's funny. Um, do you guys have questions for each other, for me? Otherwise I have one more question. Sort of the same question I just asked that none of you answered, <laughs> but I liked what you did answer. Um, <laughs> I'll say one thing that was kind of weird um, and it actually happened the other night so we did we had a bookstore reading you and um, I and Juline and a nonfiction writer named Greg Marshall and so I was really wary about reading again but um, people some people didn't make it to the reading and so they asked us to read again so Juline and I read together um, the other night and it was interesting like there was just this 
there was this weird moment where the conversation turned to like performance, right? And so there was just this sort of like from like towards me particularly, people were like, oh, like there are all these theater, uh, you know, people who have have histories in theater. They're like, oh, you're such a great performer, and like how how do you do that? And like how does the poetry world feel about that? And I, I sort of fielded those questions at the time, but I definitely thought about that for a long time after, and I came to a couple of conclusions um just for myself like I don't know where those questions came from but um it has taken me a long time to get comfortable with my work like a long time and I spent a lot of time sort of apologizing to people for having to listen to it um and I've decided that I don't do that anymore and that's not performance that 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 is standing in your particular truth as you've written it <laughs> and and being grateful to people for listening but not being ashamed of of that um and yeah that was just a really difficult experience for me because I don't consider I I don't consider the reading of poems to be any kind of performance like I'm writing to you about my life like and that is not performative to me at all like I think there's there are things that are important about stage presence and about clarity and about reading um I don't know. It's just it's just a moment where I felt like I was kind of being taken to task, and I just, I had to sort of figure that out for myself. I again, like I don't know what those motives were, and they certainly were kind in their questions and in their you know response to my work. But um, it did kind of rub me the wrong way, so I just had to kind of come to terms with like, how do I feel about that? How do I feel? How how am I going to react when the next person comes up to me and talks to me about the performance of my poems or like? stage presence or you know um and I think it also speaks to um a really artificial divide between you know right you know artists of the page and artists of the stage and I don't think that I mean that's not helpful it's divisive particularly among poets like the you know this sort of binary artificial binary between spoken word and you know writers who you know are writing out poems on the page and I, I just I don't know it just it was a kind of a, a gross feeling moment but um it again like it just encouraged me to think a little bit about myself and about what I think about those comments and and I I ended up in a good place so. I'm really glad you shared that because I feel like um there's so many important things there or so many things that are so interesting to me I'm sorry that it happened to you but I also uh and I also feel like um I don't know, like we could spend like three hours talking about that because I think part of it is about um, the flip side of the advantage of uh, presenting your work um, to non-poets because I feel like there are still poets who are very interested in like page versus stage, but like, mm-hmm. oh my God, like that's just means you haven't been listening or, mm. or met anyone in the world for like, 10 years. Um, so I kind of feel like as poets, um, you know, we could have a a really interesting conversation about performance, but it would be, it wouldn't be code for, I liked the way you read the poem, but I didn't understand the poem or I have, I, I, why are, why are some poets mumblers? I don't like that. So I'm going to like praise you for this. And then Mm -hmm. I think also there's also like a really often, not always a really racialized component to that. Absolutely. Yes. I was thinking about that too. I think that like, 
I think that, and it, I think that sometimes, you know, I, I, I will give people the benefit of the doubt. I feel like sometimes it's subconscious, but I think that when a woman of color stands in front of you and is not afraid of what she's saying to you, right, that that can come off as abrasive. And that's not my problem. I think it's like so, it's so fascinating because those same things, I don't think you are in any way oversensitive to have found that to be aggressive and not what you wanted to hear and and not very uh, thoughtful. But I also think that there's a, there's a potentially, uh, I, I wonder what are the questions that we might be asking the visual artists that are somehow similarly not... Uh, a sign of our experience and knowledge um, and thoughtfulness. And also performance, I think, is really complicated amongst poets, like whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it whether reading your poems well is a performance. And and I think this especially has to do with your work and uh, in the sense of like the 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 what's real, what's autobiographical, what's authentic. Mm-hmm. And then so in that context, the idea of performance is is kind of offensive. Um, mm-hmm. But to like somebody, I know it wasn't Maude because she's not here anymore, <laughs> but to someone who is uh, in the theater world, I think performance has a totally different uh, and maybe not pejorative sense Mm. um, because otherwise I don't know how they even do what they do because from my feelings about performance are, are pretty negative in a certain Mm. way, at least in terms of, in terms of poetry. I mean, not, not, not in a Mm -hmm. extreme way, but like, it's something that I struggle with myself. And so, but then like, if you, if you felt that way about performance and that that was what you did, you literally Mm -hmm. just like became another person and tried Mm -hmm. to fool everyone and tried to like, you know, use your body and your voice and Mm -hmm. your, you know, uh, in ways that are like totally manipulative and that, that was the goal then I think you might have a really different idea when you saw someone get up and read their work. Mm-hmm. Like why, why isn't that a compliment somehow? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so you're right. Right. I, 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 I think that the word performance is not a dirty word at all. And particularly for people with a history in theater, it is, it's what they do. Yeah. Right. And it's what they feel like they're sort of put here to do. And I, I totally respect that. Um, the comment that made me, that gave me pause was the um someone said oh you know when I talk to you at breakfast right like you're one way and then like there's this other person on like in front of people and I was just like huh like (laughs) (laughs) you know like first of all pre-7 pre-8 30 I'm not fully awake (laughs) 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 and I'm eating bacon so that I can wake up um but also but I also just think that I don't know it just it 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 felt like a sort of like aha like I've got you right like I've like I there's the you've got the secret like that I have figured out and I'm like no wait right and and can it not also be true that you know I I'm a woman who lives on many different registers right like and and who speaks many different um like languages in terms of like you know my you know um Amanda and I talked a little bit about this I was just about I was thinking about the conversation we had on the walk about code switching but Mm -hmm. I was also thinking of 
whenever I read my poems to a large group as well and the fact that each poem usually has a feeling to it and mm-hmm. usually you're not going to deliver one like a very sad and solemn poem the same mm-hmm. way you would something that's a little bit happy or that might be more satiric um, but I was also thinking, uh, your comment made me think of being a poet as a woman because mm-hmm. about a, about a year ago I did a reading and I realized in the middle of my reading that a lot of the poems were very depressing, were very sad that I was basically writing about trauma in a way. Mm-hmm. And I said in the middle, it's like, I'm, I'm sorry. And I apologize. And uh, my professor came up to me afterwards and he's like, no. And this is Tim Siebel's. He comes up to me afterwards and he's like, don't apologize. He's like, what you're saying needs to be said. He's like, you should never apologize during your reading. And I think as women and as poets that we, in a way, especially being a woman of color, Mm -hmm. that we're so quick to say, I'm sorry. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry that I'm taking up space. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're trained to do is to mm-hmm. take up as little space as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that my voice is taking up space and that my yes. body is taking up space mm-hmm. and, that, and my story is taking up space and that I'm not again, I'm not apologizing to you for telling it to mm-hmm. you. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it's so I think it's so important for um it's it's so important for us to to just be aware of that. Yes. Um, and and again, like I I do not feel that the the comments were malicious or anything like that. But yeah. it just they felt they, they still made had me the effect. Yeah. In in some ways that I think were just important for me to think about. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And I think too about like asking the maybe insensitive question to an art or like in an art conversation for a different medium, um, Koji presented his, his a few of his compositions last night. And one of the pieces had a lot of sounds that reminded many people, most of us are Americans, um, of jazz music. I asked this potentially offensive question. No, but I looked at Haruko after that piece played, and I said, that sounds like jazz. Yeah. And then someone asked Koji about that piece and what his influences were for it. And Koji is Japanese. Um, and he let us know that it, it wasn't jazz. It was shamanistic music, yeah. like Eastern shamanistic music. And I thought, of course, like, of course, we hear it as this. And he's picking it up as some, you know, and his influence comes from somewhere else. And jazz music may or may not have been influenced by Eastern shamanistic music. I don't know enough about it to know that. Um, but I think it's really interesting how you know, an audience makes connections of your work not knowing where it's coming from, um, and particularly when they're not accustomed to that medium. Um, so I think that's that's also that you know things are getting lost in translation multiple from multiple directions. Right. Um, at a place like this, and there's, so there's a lot of growing here and learning about you know all these other languages, right? The language of composition, the language of weaving and painting and all of these things which is a really exciting thing but it's also intimidating coming here and knowing that you're consuming people's work but you don't have a a language or a dialogue for it yet right and then I think there's another piece of that too which is I mean I for myself and I think for most people here 
when you're in this kind of like intensively creative space, you're very vulnerable. And um, this isn't our community of origin. It's not our community, our intentional chosen community. So we're kind of just thrown into like, um, you know, trusting basically other people to, to, to see us as we see ourselves or to see us in ways that are different than how we see ourselves, but that are useful and productive and not undermining and cruel. And, and, you know, and I think, you know, I'm interested to know also, I mean, this is a very particular place. Um, like New Hampshire is a, is a place I have some thoughts and feelings and assumptions about. It's like a very white place. Um, but then there's like the McDowell within New Hampshire. But I don't, you know, everybody comes from wherever they come from and has their own experiences and thoughts and assumptions. And I guess my question is, to the extent that you want to answer it, like, have you felt like uh, safe here, um, uh, uh, seen the way you want to be seen? Um, and uh, because I think that that could be that I know that that's not the case for everyone when they go to an MFA program, for example, and that can really cause a real disrupt disruption in your ability to do the work that you need to do. Um, my own feeling being here has not ha has been um, I, I haven't felt um, interfered with um, in that way, um, but that may be just because it, of who I am and what I'm noticing and not noticing. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about that. Um, I, yeah, like I felt, I felt safe. Um, I, I do, I did have like a, like a almost paralyzing fear of like animals. Because <laughs> people are like, yeah, somebody, someone who was here like a few weeks ago was like, I left food out for the Fisher cats. And I'm like, please what? don't. <laughs> I would prefer that you did not do that. Um, but yeah, like I felt, um, I, and I think I came in, um, someone told me uh, to expect to be asked how I got in. Oh, um, yeah. Well, how, what's the answer to that? I you mean, applied? I applied, yeah. <laughs> well, what's the Is other? there another way? I would like to know. <laughs> Wait, I don't even understand that question. Yeah, like, um, yeah, I was another woman of color. She was just like, yeah, like somebody's going to ask you how you got in. Like she'd been here before and she'd been asked that question. That never happened to me. Uh -huh. I felt embraced and, you know, accepted um, um, by the vast majority of the people here. Um, I, uh, I think that most of the work in that regard, like I had to do myself, because I got here sort of thinking that like, I got here sort of thinking like, oh, I, I am lucky to be here. Someone probably took pity on my application and like, let me come. <laughs> hey, like we should let her in. <laughs> um, and, um, I think that, and I, and I certainly mean this in, in, in like complete humility and in a very sort of realistic sense that like I got here and I, and people, you know, would read after dinner or, um, or I was reading books, you know, books, including, you know, poems by people who were here uh, in the library and it was beautiful, beautiful work. Um, 
but it also felt like work that was accessible to me and like I could understand it and you know I felt like I could I could create something similar Mm. and so very early on like I made the decision like I'm going to stop doing this like I'm going to stop feeling like I am you know that I somehow like sneaked my way into this space and I think that once I let go of that like that was the last of those issues for me I mean with the exception of the sort of exchange from a couple of nights ago but I just feel like I've I've I felt safe I felt I felt seen Mm -hmm. um you know there people were very generous to come out to the um, bookstore to hear us read and they gave great feedback and they asked great questions. Like, so yeah. it's been, it's been a positive experience for me. Um, but I, I will echo what you said a few minutes ago, which is that, I mean, I th- it's, it's always different. It's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, but I was really fortunate. I came in, there were two black women artists here who were very kind and very generous. And like, we stayed up and talked and like, I, I did, I, I have felt, you know, overwhelmingly uh, uh, comfortable mm-hmm. here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I went through the same thing as soon as I got here. It was that imposter syndrome, like how in the world did I get in here? Am I supposed to be here? And that took about like a, a day or two and then finally I kicked it and was like, I need to spend this time uh, writing. I don't know if anybody else had that sense once you got here, once you're surrounded by everybody and like, I don't know why I'm here. I must have sneaked in or they might have taken some kind of pity on my application or something like that. So I don't know if anybody else. I, I, thought, um, um, I, I thought that maybe... Um, they got the wrong Julian Johnson. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I got here and I was like, oh no, what happens if they like look at me and they're like, oh no, you're not the right one. And so it was, so it was, it was a very a humbling experience to be here um, and be with all, all you great people. I had a different experience, which I'm going to admit to, even though it's very unflattering for me to admit this which is that I've applied here so many times and been rejected every time until this time and there have been times in the past where like I really desperately have wanted um to come to a place like this and um you know, and it's, it's been, you know, a moment where my older kids were old enough, but and I, my youngest wasn't born yet. And so it felt very urgent to me. Um, and, and in those times, I had always, I didn't apply before I'd published a book. So when I came here, and I was like, wow, all these people have not published books, or they have one book, or the book is forthcoming. My thought, my, my version of imposter syndrome was like, they really must have hated my work. Like every time I applied, cause I was like, I kind of had the quote unquote credentials, like, and yet I, I didn't get in. And so that's, that's was sort of interesting to me too, to think about like, and I, who knows, like there's lots of different um, reasons why, why they choose who they choose when they choose them. And I think they did a fantastic job because I like I've been so deeply moved by everybody's work and 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 where they are. And I'm so glad that it's not based. It shouldn't ever be based on like, you know, those other kinds of credentials. But it was it was interesting to me. That was that was my I that was my dirty thought was like, ugh, you know, and then I got over it. I was like, just get yourself together and 
move on and do your stupid work like that's and I think that's one of the important things with any residency that you're applying to is that the selection process is often not very candid and you have no idea who's reviewing your application or you know when people are reviewing them how that process works is it rolling is it like better to apply early or wait till the deadline and those are the like conversations I think that um you know maybe artists should be having with people that host these sorts of residencies is like, you know, if that process could be a little more transparent, um, that might be useful. Um, but I think, I think it's important, especially for women and particularly for women of color to apply to these sorts of things. Um, because, you know, it's often women and women of color that are doing so much labor in their day-to-day life. And Rachel, you talked about this at the bookstore, um, but coming to a place like McDowell, you don't have to do any of the labor that you normally have to do in your everyday life. Like you're being fed three times a day. You don't even have to think about it. You just have to show up. Um, And so that's been really freeing and like a really wonderful part of this experience. And I'm glad to see so many women here. I did want to just say that I that I asked you, Jenny, about the two weeks in in part because I'm really interested in that and how it's been for you and for anyone. But also because just, you know, I know that um, if someone who has young children and feels like they can't leave them, imagines that two weeks is not enough there are they are less likely to apply to a residency and I'm in no position to tell anybody you should or shouldn't do this but um, there's it is interesting to me that there's uh, right now of the women who are in this uh, residency there's only one other woman who has a kid and her child is 19 so um you know that's a that's an interest like the it's a it's a tricky thing um sometimes mothers need residencies more than ever but then sometimes they feel like it's they can't have access to that um and so that i've been thinking about that a lot like ways to have it be more i don't know what the ways are because it's just is a conflict it is a it is a difficulty and everybody has their things that they've left behind or that they haven't attended to and that's either it's probably a combination of feeling really good about that and feeling really bad about that um but that that's a that's a kind of interesting um part about being here and seeing that and seeing how that's managed anyway any last thoughts questions um ideas things you feel like oh my gosh we didn't talk about that yeah go well I was just gonna say I'm not trying to sell people on McDowell but like one of the wonderful things about this residency in particular is that they do have like travel reimbursement yeah so and they do offer I think it's up to like a thousand dollars of cost for something that you would have to pay for at home, like childcare or rent or utilities, bills that you would be missing from being here. Mm-hmm. And so I think places are putting um, these practices, uh, you know, into place for to make it more accessible yeah. for um, for different types of people and people with different backgrounds who may or may not be able to come. So I think that's really wonderful. And I think as artists, we should be pushing for more of that. Um, to I'm make really these, glad you said these that. spaces yeah. more accessible. Yeah, and more inclusive and 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 I think you feel that again, I've never been to another place uh like this, so I I can't compare, but I really feel 
that they are trying more and more, you know, in really kind of important, practical and uh, like philosophical ways to to recognize that people are individuals. Everybody has their their struggles and their obstacles, and how can and 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 eliminating those, whether it's the travel grant or you know, making sure that if someone is gluten-free that they can, that they can accommodate that or handicap accessibility, you know, that they're, that they want this to be a place, um, where those kinds of things are not going to stop you from coming, stop you from applying, stop you from getting the work done here that you want to do. And I, I think that I, for me, it's been a, a real feeling of like care and, um, compassion and, um, yeah. I really, I think that also filters down to the, to the social dynamics, unless we're all just really nice people. <laughs> um, okay. So here's what I'd like to do now. Let's go out with a poem from each of you. And thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Thank you. Do you want me to say my name again or do you, yeah. do you want me to do anything? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be Amanda Galvin Huynh. This poem is after Melissa Lozada Oliva. Um, it is titled Tongue Untethered. My Spanish spoons the crescent of my dreams. Her feet walk inside ripples of a dress sewn with starlight. She holds my face to untether my tongue from its root of self-doubt and leads me into the dark reflection of the sky. Here we run. We run among an uproar of words sprouting camino, luna, estrella, casa, calle, coche, until cities overgrow in my mouth. People in places I long to hear become clear as ice melting in the heat of a Texas night. My Spanish braids summers full with filled work. Her old fingers moving back and forth tell secretos of spices y ganas. Through the frizz and curls of my Mexican hair, she tells me que linda. She tells me tu nombre es una canción. My name, a song, when I say it in Spanish, Amanda. Those A's shaken free from English open their arms to envelop the bitty bitty bum bum mi familia sways to. My Spanish turns over memories half understood dancing norteña con mi abuelo. The beer on his breath, his boots shuffling and the scruff of a farmer's accent. My Spanish helps me collect abuelo's words into a jar, baila. Chiquita, cerveza, ojalá, trabajo, algodón, like bits of metal in a junkyard. I press them to my ear to hear the worn leather of his voice. Que pajo, mija. Está bien, chiquita. Ojalá. My Spanish cracks open these lines to show me the softness between las palabras, the untranslatable and expressions, the pieces I feel are missing from my whole. My Spanish stays until dawn, quiets the night, asks for me to sing my name into the sun because she does not want to forget its music.
This is Eloisa Mesqua, and I'm reading a poem from my uh, new project titled Fighting is Like a Wife. Um, and this is one of the, there are 15 round poems in the project, and this is round four. On the mornings you're home, you read the newspaper over coffee. That's what men do. The National League won the All-Star Game in Kansas City. Germans bought a chemical plant in Wyandotte, Michigan. An officer in Dallas played Russian roulette in the front seat of a police cruiser with his 357 Magnum and a 12-year-old boy, Santos Rodriguez. His brother David sat handcuffed in the back seat under the headline, a photo of the boys standing in front of a shiny car taken months before the boy became a headline. They're beautiful and smiling, and you think of the picture in the paper from the morning before your fight with Olivares. The two of you black-haired and tanned skin with your Mexican surnames in bold letters overhead. You could be brothers. Even in the ring where he strafed you with a straight right to the chin so hard you fell to your knees. He beat you unmercifully. Ponce threw in the towel between rounds and your undefeated record gone. It's true that brothers fight and sometimes they bleed. You read that the boys were taken from their beds, accused of stealing cokes from a vending machine. The officer jumped out of the car after the single shot hit Santos's head, and David told reporters his baby brother's last words, I am telling the truth, and how he reached with his body, yelling, you're gonna be all right, as blood pooled on the car floor until both of their feet were soaked. I'm Jenny George, and uh, this poem is called One Way Gate. I just found out that um, this poem got picked up for a Norton anthology. So I, thought, I know, I know, I was, I was really pleased, so that's what um, made it rise to the surface in my mind. One-way gate. I was moving the herd from the lower pasture to the loading pen up by the road. It was cold, and their mouths steamed like torn bread. The gate swung on its wheel, knocking at the herd as they pushed through. They stomped and pocked the freezing mud with their hooves. This was January. I faced backward into the hard year. The herd faced forward, as the herd always does, muscling through the lit pane of winter air. It could have been any gate, any moment when things go one way and not the other. An act of tenderness, or a small, cruel thing done with a pocket knife. A child being born, or the way we move from sleeping to dreams as a river flows uneasy under ice. Of course, nothing can ever be returned to exactly. In the pen, the herd nosed the fence, and I forked them hay. A few dry snowflakes swirled the air. The truck would be there in an hour. Hey, good girl, go on. Get on, girl. Um, my name is Julene Johnson, 
and uh, this is scraping. It's about Alaska um, kind of meeting, threading into um, the Central Valley, San Joaquin Valley. Scraping. When Sunday morning comes, we scrape to get out of our homes in time for 8 a.m. mass. We scrape the snow four feet high, blocking the front entryway. We scrape with our bodies in snow waist-deep to school, over hills made of white, made from the bulldozers scraping at 5 a.m. 3,234 miles away, a wheel tractor scraper moves earth for fertile land to grow her crops on the flat San Joaquin Valley. Not knowing that one day the scraping of words tethered, suspended in space, a single thick welded strip of metal beam attached to a bridge 80 feet above the King's River with four friends would one day lead to the constant chase of scraping memories. While Steve scrapes out residue from his hash pipe, he says, Geometry is the brain of God. All four of us scrape together money for a bottle of Old Crow. We welcome rain. We pass the bottle around as the train ran above. As we look up, all we get is rust in our eyes. Rusty scrapes the city snow with his bare hands for shots of Glenn Levitt's and a hopeless house bus kept warm with a space heater that ran off a generator. Harry scrapes at his rake and scrape while he prays to snow for warm sand and sun. He forgot what he looks like. Harry's band never became big and he began selling cocaine in the bars around town. My dad always said a hand scraper could scrape a pencil into a fine point. But today, I trust it to scrape inch by inch the snow, careful to miss the concrete below. My name is Destiny Birdsong, and this poem is called The Candy Lady, or Post-Reganomics, 1991. Miss Jolene, sugar mama before Beyonce, with black pantyhose and terry cloth slippers, a dark green floral muumuu, and a son back from the Persian Gulf with shaky hands making change. Our mothers whispered shell shock and I imagined his veins shuddering with shards of pearl. She had a husband with emphysema, and still the house reeked of cigars, mouths to feed. Her Kool-Aid freeze cups hooked you with the first sting of tongue to gluey ice, the first whiff of syrupy vapor rising from the styrofoam cup. Usually I wanted stage planks, but they were 50 cents and Mama only gave us one quarter at a time. That is, until the family across the street started selling two. Vanilla moon pies, which Mama loved, and sometimes she'd send us out at 10 at night, P 
peeking through the blinds as we crossed Roy Tan Drive away from the gray and orange sidings of Section 8 to the last few private houses on the street. The family, a stepdad, two tween girls, and the woman who gave my mother her first job. The daddy and girls would be awake, watching movies under a blanket. Later, he'd go to jail for what he was doing when he heard my sister's small-handed knock. Miss Jerlene couldn't stand them. I got a permit to do what I do, she'd say. Every time we came back, her husband's breathing grew louder. The son started wandering the streets, rapping lyrics to himself. As she dropped each coin into a coffee can, she talked about papers. We nodded our heads, agreeing. But then the other family lowered their prices, started selling airheads, gushers, snacks you could share with the suburban kids without shame, a new kind of high. We saw Miss Jerlene less and less. A few months later, a strange woman answered her door. This has been episode 48 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. Commonplace producers are Nicholas Fuenzalida, Christine LaRusso, and James Ciano. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Music performed and written by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Design work by Eitan Darwish. Many thanks to Copper Canyon Press and Shelter Belt Press for donating books to our raffle, as well as to the other presses who have been so generous as well. Thank you to all of our patrons, and thank you to you, listener. Take care. <laughs>